Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the RBR Recap, presented by Round by Round Boxing and RX Water. Welcome back to the RBR Recap, Episode 9. I'm Alex Burgos, joined as always by my co-host, Gabriel Rivas. New background from my man, Gabe. He's an East Coast dude uh, for Episode 9 here. Gabe, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. I'm out here in Florida. It's kind of warm out here, but I'm having a lot of fun and kind of nice to finally do the podcast in East Coast time. Excited to jump on here because maybe on paper we didn't expect to have so much to talk about, given the fact that Virgil Ortiz, um, you know, had to back out of his headlining fight on the zone uh, with that Golden Boy fight. Uh, but there was a lot of storylines that ended up, you know, coming about this week and um, ended up happening. The first fight we want to jump into and talk about is the ESPN top rank card, which uh, featured in his first headlining opportunity, Edgar Berlanga, who sold out the Hulu Theater at Madison Square Garden. And so in front of 5,158 fans. Berlanga prevailed via 10-round unanimous decision over veteran Steve Rolls with scores of 96-94 and 97-93 twice. Now, heading into the fight, Rolls was a heavy underdog at plus 800. Berlanga was a minus 1,600 favor, so pretty big gap there. Uh, Rolls had pockets of success, especially with the right hands um, and those power jabs kind of midway through the fight and after. And although Berlanga... I think did do enough to win the fight. I thought that 96-94 scorecard uh, was was pretty good and and representative of that fight. There were a lot of people after the fight, at least commenting on Twitter and, and Instagram, that thought it was a quote-unquote robbery. And, you know, you hear that word thrown around a lot. Uh, sometimes it doesn't make sense. I don't think this was a robbery, but it was very close. You could argue that 95-95, maybe a draw, 96-94. Um, I thought the, um, the commentating team was pretty honest about Berlanga's performance. Uh, Timothy Bradley, of course, was extra hard on Berlanga, uh, like he's now accustomed to being to these fighters. And so I, I thought some of the stuff that he said was was on point. But um, I think there's a lot of questions uh, coming out of this fight for Berlanga. Gabe, I want to know what you thought of his performance, uh, first and foremost. A lackluster performance on behalf of Edgar Berlanga on a card that featured three Puerto Rican fighters on the ESPN broadcast. You can see that there are some things that he needs to work on, especially with regard to cutting the ring, using his jab more, and really learning how to work for your knockouts uh, instead of depending uh, on a single punch. And so uh, it was less, uh, a less than stellar performance by Edgar Berlanga, but he is young in his career. Maybe what we're seeing right now is that he's in the spotlight because of those spectacular 16 knockouts, but perhaps it's counterproductive at this point. And maybe he needs to, uh, you know, take a fight or two in the co-main event or in the opener of the broadcast with a little bit of less attention so that he can have time to mature, to get some seasoning, and then learn how to really work to get his knockouts and finish them so that when he next headlines an MSG event at the Hulu Theater, he can end in spectacular fashion by knocking his opponent out. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you said. Um, I thought the real winner of the night just to shift quickly was Xander Zayas, a uh, young prospect, TR guy, uh, top rank guy, and a PR guy, Puerto Rican. He is really the goods, and he's showing now consistently um, that he really is going to be that next wave of dominant uh, Puerto Rican fighters. They're billing Berlanga as this quote-unquote monster, uh, but 
I think he's they're getting a little bit ahead of themselves here. He's lived off of this persona of being a knockout artist. That that streak of first round knockouts has really done him some more harm than good. And so I'd like to see him kind of take the Xander Zayas route, where you know he fought six times last year, and he's not looking to headline, uh, you know, at MSG or Hulu Theater, whatever it is. You know, get those rounds in, get the that experience. I liked the Steve Rolls fight, and you know, on the uh, money line rundown on the Box Bet podcast earlier this week, I said. Uh, and I don't always get it right. So I got to toot my own horn when I do get it right. But I said we wanted and we thought Steve Rolls was going to ask questions of Edgar Berlanga, even at 37 years of age. And that's exactly what he did. That's why this fight was so important. He took him the distance. He gave him gave him different looks. And he really, um, you know, made it difficult and took punches so that, you know, we saw what happens when Berlanga doesn't get that knockout. What happens when he has to go those rounds? What happens when he gets frustrated and misses and this and that? And the, the fact of the matter is, I mean, he even stated in his post-fight interview, you know, I was going for the knockout. Yeah, that, that's all I was going for. You know, and you could tell Andre Ward repeated that uh, as well. And it's just like, you can't go in there thinking you're going to knock every single fighter out. That has to be one part of your, uh, you know, repertoire and in your bag of tricks. But you've got to get back to boxing. You know, I don't know much about him as an amateur, but from what I've heard, he he was a boxer in the amateurs. He wasn't this obviously knockout artist. Um, and then with headgear, it's different. But, you know, he has boxing ability, but he's become enamored and fallen in love with his power. And it's just not going to go that route, especially as you've mentioned previously with other fighters. As the competition steps up, you know, things are going to get more difficult. And you saw that with Steve Rolls, who's, you know, you could say he ran all fight. He did this. He did that. At the end of the day, that's not what happened. He just didn't fall into that trap of wanting to brawl and engage with a guy that, you know, he's not going to win that fight. He went into a fight having a, a specific strategy and he did what he had to do. And that's tough for Berlanga because Rolls is not going to be the cream of the crop. He's not the, the top guy that you're going to fight uh, moving forward. You know, when you're throwing around a year ago, you're throwing around names like Canelo and, and David Benavidez, even uh, who's younger than Berlanga. I mean, <laughs> These guys are on other stratospheres than Berlanga. And look, Berlanga can still be something, a title holder, a great knockout artist, but he's going to have to add other things to his repertoire. If he could take a page out of Zaya's uh, playbook and really fight five, six times this year, do it more so under the radar. You know, we don't need you to headline. He's got the star power, but it's unfortunate because now the skills aren't matching the star power. So, you know, let that s settle for a little bit and just get back to doing what you do and getting back to improving, um, you know, as a fighter. And so the other thing I wanted to ask you as well is what is your mindset? Because you've worked corners, you know, you're, you're one of the very interesting guys, your background, because, you know, you've worked with fighters on many different platforms and levels. You know, when we say publicist, interpreter, writer, reporter, I mean, you wear all these different hats, but you've also been in the gym um, and we've seen you could throw hands too. So, but when you've been in corners, what is your uh, thought on having three guys? Berlanga has his dad, Andre Rozier, Kay Karoma, two super accomplished coaches, and then his father, you know, who's always going to be that guy in his ear. I mean, how do you make sense of all of that instruction, even if they're saying the same thing? I mean, what is your thought on having a corner with so many, you know, people that are supposed to be the head person? Absolutely. Real quickly, I did want to mention that. I also believe it, you know, we shouldn't be too harsh on the fighter. But after all, if you're, if you're in the main event of the fight and you're talking about big names, it's hard for people not to be harsh on you mm -hmm. after a performance like that. So I get both sides. But 
he is a victim of his own popularity and he's a victim of his own excellent knockout streak that he started his career with. And it's, you kind of got to see it both ways. You know, you have to continue living up to it, but it's hard to continue living up to it. And so maybe some of that solution, like you mentioned, is to fight under the radar a little bit where that pressure isn't going to be there and where, um, uh, you know, the, the, the desire to knock people out won't be in his mindset so that he can work and, on new things and uh, work for his knockouts, right? And right. so uh, another thing that I think it's an element, which you just mentioned, um, so I'll get back to your, your question right now, is uh, that the number of people in the corner. So you have your popularity. You have all these people who are rooting for you to win by knockout. You have this impressive record uh, and knockout streak to keep up with. And then in the corner, you have three people yelling at you different instructions, or perhaps they were the same instructions. Either way, I think it's important to maintain tranquility in the quarter and also to maintain one streamlined source of information so that your fighter, um, you know, can properly understand what's going on. You only have one minute to get your bearings together in the corner, right? You're also thinking, let me get the sip of water. If there's blood or something, let me uh, make sure that these cuts are taken care of. Uh, make sure, you know, everything's clean. Get that Vaseline on before you get back out there. And then those brief seconds where you're sitting down, listening to your corner about what you need to do. And that needs to be streamlined very, very, in a very calm manner, because I mean, being in a classroom or being with your friends, it's, it's, it's might be easy to understand things, but when you're in a corner, when there's a big crowd and you're in the middle of a fight, it's hard to really comprehend things. You know what I mean? So I think it's important to maintain, maintain tranquility, have one voice in the corner. Uh, and also, now, I don't know what goes on behind the scenes, and I'm not a person to be do, too judgmental of corners and trainers because it's hard to traverse the um, the wide gap between what your corner tells you and what you do. But it, it's very hard to ask your fighter to do something if you did not work on it a million times in the gym. Right. So are they doing the drills? Are they working the jabs? Are they uh, doing a million different drills that teach them how to cut the ring? Are they doing all these things and 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 asking them to do it and they simply can't do it? Or have they not done any of that and are reacting in the corner and saying, oh, wait, this is what you need to do. You know what I mean? Because that's two different scenarios. And again, I'm not one to be judgmental on the fighter or the corner until you really have all the details. But those are all things to consider with regards to what's going on in the corner and how it's being difficult to um, take what you're supposed to do and translate that into performance in the ring. Also, I'll just add one last little tidbit as well. I'm not putting all the onus on Edgar Berlanga because he's the fighter. His job is to go out and fight. Um, obviously learn new things from the people that are teaching him. But also we got to put a little bit of the onus on, you know, the network, the promoter, put him in a position to win. You know what I mean? He's coming off of an injury. He's coming off of a fight, uh, you know, the biceps injury, a fight where he was knocked down, like all of these things. And then on top of that, you're going to pile on the fact that he's going to main, you know, headline at MSG, the Hulu theater. And then everyone and every, you know, everyone and anyone is coming out. You know, you had, Papoose, Fat Joe, you know, all the stars, the hip hop stars coming out to see what a knockout. And, um, you know, it didn't come to fruition for him. And so, unfortunately, maybe that puts a little bit more doubt in his mind, because even Andre Ward, I go back to some of the stuff that he was talking about when he got buzzed. You know, you start to question yourself as a fighter. Can I take a punch? I mean, so you're asking Berlanga to now get over that, get over the injury. Do your first camp with these other two trainers and then incorporate all of that stuff all in, in this next fight. I mean, it's just a lot. Put your guy in a position to win. Um, and so hopefully moving forward, because maybe the promoter, maybe the network, they thought, 
okay, he's going to come back. He's going to get back to that knockout streak. And we'll, you know, we'll show everyone that we have the star. And I'm not saying he can't be a star, but he's got to build his way back um, to being able to do those things by really sharpening his tools, uh, boxing, cutting off the ring, like you mentioned, jabbing and so forth. And so I thought it was a really good fight for him. And it remains to be seen how he takes this experience and uh, moves forward. But I think he also needs to be honest and look back at himself. Steve Rolls, you know, was not running. Not everyone is just going to be baited into a fight with you because that's to your benefit. You know, they're going to do what's best for them to win. At the end of the day, you get a win and you get a loss. Uh, And so he's going to do what's best for him to try to win. And so Berlanga has to do the same thing. And it's hard not to compare it against the Triple G performance with Steve Rose. <laughs> or, or as Fat Joe called him, Triple H. That guy only lost to Triple H, man. That guy wasn't no bum in there, bro. Granted, he was at 164 pounds. I believe he was a catch weight. And it was, uh, Golovkin was 37 years old at that time, I believe. And so it was a single punch knockout. He looked spectacular. And uh, Berlanga at 168 feels in comparison with uh, Golovkin, who did a, a lot better at a lower weight class, technically not because of the catch weight, but also he was 37 years old. And so you expect a little bit more from Berlanga because he's naturally bigger, bigger and, uh, you know, and much younger. Also on Saturday night, we had Alexis Lex Rocha taking on Blair the Flair Cobbs. That was a golden boy card on the zone. Obviously, the original headlining fight was Virgil Ortiz, uh, who's going to take on Michael McKinson, but Ortiz dropped out of that fight. But, you know, Rocha and Cobbs really got the, the fanfare going throughout the fight week, press conferences were on fire, the weigh-ins, the face-off. So they had everyone's attention. In the fight, Rocha sent Cobbs to the canvas in round eight, uh, and then behind a barrage of punches in round nine, forced the referee to stop the fight. Now, Cobbs had a few moments early on, but Rocha, who was a more technical and sound boxer, uh, and went into the fight as a minus 250 uh, favorite, looked pretty good. And, and you know, he controlled... Uh, things as they progressed and really was able to handle Cobbs' kind of like awkward style. Um, he went into the fight as a plus 195 underdog, not a huge underdog, but ended up losing the fight. As I mentioned, a lot of the attention pre-fight was on Cobbs and Rocha because of Cobbs' theatrics, uh, his quotes. And, you know, regardless of what you think of him, he became like this thing where everyone's like, maybe I missed something before, or is is this dude must see TV? Like, I'm going to watch. What were your thoughts on this fight? Not just from the, the Rocha victory perspective over Cobbs, but maybe what, what do we make of Blair Cobbs, the fighter? Well, it was an excellent performance by Alexis Rocha. And it was what I was, what I expected because I've been following him since maybe 2016 or 2017. And even back then I saw him as a prospect who'd be, eventually become a contender and be a solid one at 147 pounds. You go back to the RBR archives, there's probably a video that I took covering ringside at LA Fight Club of Alexis Rocha scoring an impressive knockout in downtown LA. You know what I mean? So we've been following for a long time. I've always liked his style because, you know, he he short punches defensively, very smart, knows how to throw combinations, sit on his punches, a very professional style. I've always liked it. And he demonstrated that in this fight against Blair Cobbs. By intelligently closing the distance, it was a battle between two southpaws, but he still managed um, to, you know, overcome that awkwardness because you usually don't get uh, two southpaws fighting each other. Um, and he showed some smart defense, smart left hands, even at times when he was counterpunching. A lot of times we want to counterpunch and go to the head. He would counterpunch and throw combinations to the body. And his corner was telling that, look, if you're going to come back, 
Don't just come back with one punch. Come back with a few punches, and that's what he was doing. And, you know, in the beginning, he took a lead. Cobbs managed to cut him, I think, in the third or fourth round with a punch in his right eye, and that kind of bothered Rocha. But then he got his rhythm back, and as you said, by the eighth round, dropped him. In the ninth round, the way he stopped him was very intelligent as well. I think there were perhaps some rabbit punches. I got to look at the highlights again, but there were short punches that were done while he was clinching. And a lot of fighters don't know how to do that. They get into a clinch and they don't know what to do. But Rocha was able to maybe find a little bit of distance, use his free hand and go for the knockout. That's another thing that boxers sometimes don't know how to do is to, you know, maybe use your shoulder, let go of the hand of one hand and use that free hand to continue hurting your opponent. So a really good performance by uh, Rocha and with Cobbs, I've been following him for years as well. And what a lot of people perhaps forgot or didn't know is that he's fought undefeated fighters before. He took the undefeated record of Ferdinand Corobian um, a few years back, I believe in August 2018. Then I think the following year, he fought Steve Villalobos, took his undefeated record. In both of those fights, he was going in, I think, as the underdog. And I think in both of them, he got dropped before either defeating by a decision or knocking out. Uh, his opponent. So he had always shown heart determination. Perhaps he would get dropped. Perhaps he has really, uh, you know, not the best technique, but he really showed that he has a fighter spirit in those fights. And that's why I thought it was a lot closer going into the fight because, you know, he has an undefeated record that he earned by really facing a tough opposition. Now, I think he fell out of favor with a lot of people because of his trash talk and his antics, right? And look, he's a WWE fan. Or if you're from our generation, a WWF fan, he probably grew up with DX, with NWO, with The Undertaker, Stone Cold, Steve Austin. And in that time, it was about, I mean, it still is about being brash, but more so back then. You know what I mean? It, it, it was really made for teeny, teen audiences and young adults. And, you know, there's a lot of brashness back then. And so I think he still brings that in, brings that to the table. He's trying to implement some of the antics and the performances that you see in pro wrestling into professional boxing and i think that's good because it attracts a lot of attention it brings a lot of eyes it makes the fight more exciting perhaps it helps sell tickets and get you know people to watch it on the zones take one quick example before the pandemic uh he fought in the undercard of ryan garcia i think it was against samuel cote if i remember it correctly but he fought on the undercard again some of those antics as well going into the fight talking trash and then in his way to the ring he came out to Shawn michaels's theme thong uh, the, you know, the heartbreak case, Shawn Michaels, and, uh, you know, very appropriate because it was on Valentine's Day. I think he brought in some pants with hearts in it. I mean, after the fight and before, I think he started dancing like him as well. And so it, it's really easy to paint him as the bad guy. And maybe he is. Maybe he's the heel to, you know, use the language from pro wrestling. But I think people shouldn't take his insults too seriously. I don't think they should take his bravado too seriously because I think he's selling the fight. He's now over here trying to insult someone or making them feel bad about themselves. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you said. And I think uh, Lex Rocha kind of discussed that after the fight as well in his post-fight interview. Um, he mentioned that his corner was like, you know, don't let this guy get into your head. And he's like, no, like, I want him to talk. You know, I'm like, he didn't take it personally. He's like, I want him to talk. I want to, I want to talk back a little bit and hype this thing up. You know, let, like, like you've said in the past, let's sell some tickets. Um, let's get some attention on this fight and, and really do what we're supposed to do or, or do our part of prize fighting and really getting eyeballs on this event, especially in the tough situation that they were coming in, you know, fight week, getting the main event canceled with, you know, the fanfare behind Virgil Ortiz and now kind of a, you know, quote unquote letdown. Now they get bumped up to the uh, main event. You know, you have to do something 
to sell that fight. Blair Cobbs was the perfect guy to do so. My only question is, he's got everything outside of the ring lockdown in terms of promotion, style, brash, the talking, all that stuff. I don't know that he'll be able to catch up in terms of skill because, um, you know, the loss against Rocha is not a deal breaker. You know, he can come back from that. But, you know, what type of fight does he need to come back with to get his confidence and also convince the paying crowd like, okay, this dude could actually maybe make some noise or, you know, I'm not saying he's going to be pound for pound or anything like this, but you got to pump your brakes if you're Cobbs also when you're talking about guys like Errol Spence and Boots Ennis and stuff like that, you know, you're going to get the backlash when you get stopped like you did against Rocha. Now, I love the the the, the style and the, the brash and the talk and all that stuff that Cobbs does. You have an opinion on where does he go from here? What kind of fight does maybe he need to get back into the mix I'm not sure what's next in his career in terms of the particular fighter, but I'd like to see him go back to the gym. He hasn't been with Freddie Roach for a long time. I think maybe two years. I think he started perhaps 2019, maybe 2020. But to continue working with him, Freddie Roach, um, it's not just him. There's also Marvin Simodio. There's also the Olympian Pepe Riley. They're all working on him, uh, making him uh, making his punches shorter, making him a little bit more technical, teaching him how to box. Um, so I want to see what are the fruits of that labor, of that work with Freddie Roach. It's one loss, but it's not the end of his career. So I don't know who he fights next, but I'd like to see him go back to the gym, continue learning from them, continue working with them. I mean, he's getting great sparring. A lot of welterweights there, including Golden Boy stablemate Raul Curiel. But there's a lot of people to work with for him to continue growing in his career. And with regard to Alexis Rocha, I mean, I, like I mentioned before, um, I've always felt he was a top prospect. Now he's developing into a top contender. He has a real fun style. He can mix up the high card. He can mix up the counter punching and the combination punches. Um, And he himself said, look, let's do it. Michael McKinson, um, Connor Ben, he wants those big challenges. Is it going to happen immediately next? Probably not. Maybe a nice hometown defense in Anaheim or Santa Ana. But I think in a few fights, he can really develop into a top 10 contender. And, you know, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, a couple of the, you know names you mentioned, McKinson and and uh, Connor Ben. I like that whole like matchroom Golden Boy thing. They can make those fights happen on the zone. Um, I like mixing those stables and you know those uh, promoters working alongside each other because there's a lot of good matchups within that weight range. So definitely something to watch. I, I got to shout out uh, Marvin Simodio. He's a guy that I like um, to you know in the corner. I like the work that he does. So Cobb is in good hands if he does stay uh, in that Freddie Roach stable as well. So it remains to be seen what's next for him, but. We definitely agree that we'd like to see him back in the gym, sharpen those tools, and definitely show us that he can come back and, and make some noise in that division. Thanks for tuning in to the RBR Recap. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you for listening to the RBR Recap. Make sure to follow us on social media at RBR Recap and visit rbrrecap.com for the latest episodes.